The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. And this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of August 26, 2019. On this week's show, former NFL players Jake Plummer and Nate Jackson will join us to talk about Colts quarterback Andrew Luck's shocking retirement and what that retirement says about luck and about the NFL. Longtime NFL place kicker Billy Cundiff will also be here to discuss the Chicago Bears' long-running, bizarre, and questionably successful spate of tryouts to bring in a new kicker. And Slate's Christina Cotarucci will join us to assess the state of the National Women's Soccer League and our hometown Washington spirit, which just got a record crowd on Saturday. Joining me in Slate's Washington, D.C. studio is the author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. It is Stefan Fatsis. Hey, Josh. <laughs> Little pause there. Made me worry, but you're here. I was waiting for you to say hi first. Hi. There hi. you go. This is like my ideal. This is like the Stefan Fatsis show. We've got two of my former Broncos buddies. Stars a of kicker. A Few fa- Seconds of Panic. Stars of A Few Seconds of Panic. A kicker and women's soccer. I'm glad to help make that happen for this you. This is like a craft brewed podcast for me. I don't know if we should tell the listeners that we already recorded the show and we're just doing this after. We never reveal things like that. We never never show our cards in that way. But I think we can say that we're happy with how this week's show came out. Yes, it was a good show. You can leave now. <laughs> Please don't. You know what another good show is going to be? Mike Pesca at the Bell House in Brooklyn, Monday, September 16th. Gist comedy special. Hari Kondabolu will be there. 20 bucks. Slate.com slash live. Support Pesca. Comedy. It'll be good. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire. By famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. On Saturday night in Indianapolis, Colts quarterback Andrew Luck surprised everyone inside and outside the league when he announced he's retiring from the NFL at the age of 29. Luck led the Colts to the second round of the playoffs last year, a season in which he threw 39 touchdown passes. But in the years before that, he'd been hurt a lot. Torn cartilage in his shoulder, busted ribs, lacerated kidney. This offseason, he had calf and ankle injuries that would not get better. Here's Luck in his impromptu press conference on Saturday night. I'm in pain. I'm still in pain. I've been in this cycle, which feels like, I mean, it's been four years of this injury pain rehab cycle. And for me to move forward in my life the way I want to, it it doesn't involve football. Joining us now to talk about Luck is Jake Plummer. He played quarterback for the Arizona Cardinals and Denver Broncos from 1997 to 2006 and chose to walk away from the NFL at age 32. Hey, Jake. Good morning. And also with us is Nate Jackson. He played for the Broncos 
from 2003 to 2008. If I were to read off all of the injuries he suffered playing football, this podcast would be three hours long. Uh, But check out his books, Slow Getting Up and Fantasy Man, where he writes extremely well about being an NFL player and then an NFL retiree. What's up, Nate? What is up, Josh? Good to have you back, man. Let's listen to another clip from Lux press conference. Here he is answering a reporter who just listed off all of his injuries, the ribs, the kidney, the shoulder, the ankle, the calf. I'd like to say, too, this has been my personal journey in football, obviously, and not and everybody's journey is, is, is different. And I, uh, I, you know, over the past week, I'd sit and think, you know, am I, do I, am I going to have a bunch of resentment towards this game or spite towards, you know, coming to this building or, and, and I don't, I, I, all I feel is love for this game and love for my teammates and walking in and Nate, it's interesting that he doesn't blame football for his retirement from football. What do you hear when uh, you hear luck right there? I hear a very conflicted man who's dealing with some really complex emotions, um, who's facing the end of the line for his football journey uh, and who loves his teammates. Like he said, loves the memories, but has had enough of it mentally and physically, and is actually has the wherewithal to do something about that. I think there's a lot of players who often have those thoughts. I know I did when I was dealing with all those injuries. I know Jake did. Uh, eventually, he walked away from it. And so, but but it's very rare that a guy actually does get to walk away on his own terms, so to speak. And I think uh, Andrew Luck is kind of giving you a glimpse into his mind. At the moment, I don't think he has all the answers right now. I mean, when I left, I was I was bitter towards the people who ended it for me because I didn't I didn't end it on my own terms like he is. And so there is an element of bitterness that I had, but not towards the game, not towards football. I still love football and I love what it, it brought out of me. But for him to be able to do this, it, it kind of takes a I don't know. It takes a separation from yourself that I think is very rare. Jake, you know, the parallel with Andrew Luck isn't perfect with your career. I mean, you played into your 30s. You were, by NFL standards, relatively injury-free. You missed almost no playing time. And you had been done dirty by the Broncos while Luck was still beloved. I mean, the Colts reportedly aren't going to go after almost $13 million in unearned signing bonuses that Luck would have owed them. But you both left on your own terms before you were cut, like Nate was. You both could have stayed in the league. You both left millions of dollars in future earnings on the table. But neither of yourselves, it sounds like, could will yourselves mentally to keep playing. And I think that's an overlooked point here, that you can't play in the NFL if you're not right mentally. That's a great point. You know, it's uh, it's a game you got to be 100% wholehearted uh, and mind, body, and everything into it. Because if not, then you'll, you you can suffer uh, tremendously, you know, whether it's that's injury or, or letting down the guy next to you, cause it's all about team. There's no I in team. And that's a lame, lame way to say that, but it, it's oversaid a lot, but it is, it's, it's one position. He's the quarterback. He's the focal, focal point. And as, as Nate said, I think you're dealing with a guy who, who also is not your, your, you know, typical football quarterback jock. I mean, I know this guy's a very smart guy who thinks a lot, does, does a lot of things outside of the game. So I know he's not going to suffer to twiddle his thumbs and wonder what's next. I believe he's a, a brilliant young man that's going to be, have a lot of opportunities. And I, I'm not sure if this is the final time we'll see Luck be done playing football with what it sounds like is he's just been beat up so much and in this nasty cycle of, of an injury causing another injury to, to get back out there and get injured again. It's almost like if I could have taken a, a year off around year eight or nine or you know maybe after that ninth season take a, a little break, I might have had a little bit more love for the game and, and yearning to get back out there and play. It sounds to me like he's just 
tired. And I know from rehabbing my hips post-career, had I had to go through anything near what he's done with rehab, I would have walked away from the game. There's no way in hell I would have spent four years trying to get back on the field just to get hurt again. It would have dawned on me like, this is not what I want to be doing. And I think that for him, that, that's what it, what's happening. He can't do the thing he loves because it, you get hurt when you do it, and he's going to walk away from it. And I know the kid has a lot of other interests. So I, I want to mention, too, one thing that, you know, the Colts, what a classy organization, same as the Broncos. My rights were traded to Tampa. So the money that Mr. Boland wasn't going to try to claim back when I retired, Tampa did. That was a money grab. They took me as a chance to either get me or if I did not play, capture that three and a half million of my remaining bonus. So that was something that kind of stunk for me was giving that money back. But I'd signed, I'd played through a couple contracts. It's an easy decision when you have millions in the bank to walk away like he's doing. It was easier for me. So I imagine for him, it's the same thing. Whereas for Nate, you know, Nate, you had to keep going, man. You had to play and keep pushing to try to make as much as you can in the, in the time you could because everyone forgets we're not all on the same pay scale in the NFL. Nate, I mean, the one thing that we don't see as fans is the rehab. We kind of hear about it retrospectively, maybe in like a soft focus ESPN feature about all of the hard work that went into getting back on the field. And we get to see the fun stuff, the 39 touchdown passes. But for a player like Luck, I mean, especially one who's so willing in that press conference like he was to tell us about what it was like mentally. Um, that must just be so hard um, to go through that time off the field in pain, not knowing if you're going to get back. Yeah, it's it's a pretty depressing time because you get pulled out of the kind of process with your teammates at the same time. I mean, it's not just you in there rehabbing your injury all day. You're not going to meetings anymore. You're not out on the field. You're not traveling. You're not doing all the things that really being a teammate is about and the rewarding parts of it are gone. And so when a guy like Andrew Luck, who, you know, he, he missed an entire season trying to figure out, figure out that shoulder thing. And then he goes over to the Netherlands and by all accounts, he had kind of a kind of come to Jesus moment over there. He was alone with his wife and they were thinking about all the things that they'd been through. And I think ultimately over there is what kind of put things in perspective for him. You also got to understand, like this guy, like Jake was saying, is a very different kind of NFL player. He started a book club and, and, and football players. I don't know if you guys know this. They don't read books, guys. They don't read books. You guys they, read books. Come on. I mean, I some, of them, some of them do. <laughs> so, well, well, they try, you know, we try, but it's not part of our kind of process to be thinking about other thoughts, other worldly ideas and, and forming a group of guys to do that. Yeah. We had our conversations that were about other things. We cared about a lot of other things. But Andrew Luck was actively putting himself on the other side and trying to pull guys into a more kind of conscientious state of mind. And the fact that he's um, internalized all that and been through all that and decided to do this just shows how how much of a toll that rehab pain uh, process took on him. I mean, uh, four straight years of this stuff, man, and and you got people breathing down your neck. You got the expectations of an entire city 
an entire organization. He's the savior. We don't go anywhere without you, Andrew. I mean, that probably just became too much for him. I was actually pleasantly surprised by the bulk of the reaction to Luck's retirement. There have been some morons on Twitter. Jay Glazer called the decision insane. Doug Gottlieb said retiring because rehabbing is too hard is the most millennial thing ever. Steve Berline, a former quarterback whom you replaced as the starter in Denver in 2003, Jake, he went on a long Twitter jag saying that Luck was leaving his teammates, his organization, fans, the entire NFL out to dry and the decision would haunt him. Um, yeah. But but by and large, it's been remarkably supportive. Russell Okung had what I thought was the best player reaction, the most perceptive one on Twitter. He said, Andrew Luck, like many players, sacrificed his health in order to make money. Then he sacrificed money to recuperate his health. Congratulations to him. Um, do you guys think that after a decade of CTE news, NFL fans like players are slowly becoming more empathetic about what playing this game does to the players? That's a hard one because fans, I mean, even in his home, home stadium, when he walked off, they booed him there in Indianapolis. And I think fans are so reactionary that they don't think past two seconds, you know, what they're going to say or scream out of their mouths. And so the intelligent fans, uh, the fans that, that know what life's really about, it's not just about fantasy points and, you know, cracking skulls and, and getting the bloody and, and fighting for, you know, the, the win and, and all that, that people, you know, rant or rave about football and all the characteristics it helps develop, which is true. You know, you can develop some great characteristics, but for the fan, you know, there's, there's the, the dad that's screaming the F-bomb with his son standing next to him. You know, their fans are just kind of uh, oblivious to sometimes real life. Uh, they think of us as gladiators, as superheroes, and really we're the same people that, get up, have coffee, take a dump, put our pants on and brush our teeth. We're humans. We just have a skill set that sets us aside and gives us an opportunity to make money. So the fans that have a bad reaction to it, I, I mean, I ran across many that when I walked away, people could not fathom that I walked away. And I would retort and say, I played 10 seasons. I played 10 straight seasons in the NFL and I got benched at the end. So I was done, obviously. So these fans that don't understand what goes into it and what we put our bodies and our minds and our families and our friends through. They're the ones that just, they're, they're the ones screaming F-bombs with their child right next to them. They're the idiots that are, you know, supplying the money for these people to make the players to make the money there are, they, they're making now. So the ones that do start to get it, I think are understanding they maybe have children themselves and they care about their children and they wonder about how important a game like football is uh, for longevity for health and wellness, <laughs> do you want your son to play football just to try to make millions and and possibly sacrifice you know what what it is who knows you know if you're lucky you get out of it you know relatively unscathed, but otherwise we all deal with you know ghosts from our past, the ones that have played football for a long time so my my kudos are the fans that understand the ones that don't you know they're they're the kind of the the, the people that are <laughs> sometimes driving things the wrong way in our own country. So I, I applaud Luck and what he's doing. I just think that he maybe he's going to come back. <laughs> I've said he's the greatest. He's, he was the best quarterback in the league a couple times on my podcast. I, I felt like he had the ability to become the, the best quarterback to play the game, and at times he was. So I feel bad don't see him leave because I loved watching him play, but I'm so happy he's going to go pursue other things in life and, and understand and realize there's so much more out there than just football. It's just so different because he's a quarterback. We've seen, you know, going back to 
Jim Brown and then forwards uh, Barry Sanders, Robert Smith, Calvin Johnson, you know, running backs, wide receivers leaving the game early because of the physical toll. And even more recently, Josh, uh, Rob Gronkowski. Rob Gronkowski at age 29, Patrick Willis, Chris Borland, we could go on. But there are rules in place now to protect quarterbacks, I think, because the NFL understands that these are the recognizable players, the stars, and that they want them to play in the league until they're as old as Tom Brady, if they're as good as Tom Brady is. And so I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes from, Nate. It's like we've started to wrap our heads around the fact that a lot of guys wouldn't want to play beyond the age of 30, but maybe not a guy like Andrew Luck. Like this feels like a new stage or or maybe just an outlier. Well, yeah, the, like you just said, the rules of the game are set up to make, to let the quarterback play until he's 65, you know, <laughs> if, if, if possible. Jake Plummer, uh, every- come back. Before you go further, Nate, that's for the guy that stands in the pocket like Brady. Yeah. It's not no, for no, Cam I'll- Newton, Russell right. Wilson, the scramblers. Those guys like Luck put their bodies at harm. There's no rules that have saved them once they get out of the pocket. So Tom Brady, who never scrambles, <laughs> he's safe till he's 60. Yep. Yeah, that's what I was. That's what I was about to say. So, so Andrew Luck is the type of player, as you you know, you've seen him being mic'd up in the games and stuff. He wants to get hit. He wants to be out there being a football player. He, when he runs, he doesn't he doesn't slide. You know, he's not a slider. He he's a very athletic guy too. He's very big, strong, and athletic. And when you run like that, when you have an instinct to run a certain way, you can't turn that off. You can't flip the switch and say, oh, "I'm just going to play like Tom Brady now." If you're if you're if you're Andrew Luck or Cam Newton, you're going to play the way you're going to play forever and you're going to have pundits telling you oh no take the slide no throw it out of bounds you can't you can't betray your instinct in those moments and i think andrew luck was very aware that he was not able to do that and it was just going to get worse these injuries were going to, were going to pile up but nate um, a lot of people are blaming ryan grigson the gm for the colts in the first part of luck's career for not building an offensive line he got hit more than any quarterback in the nfl and i don't think that's because he necessarily wanted to take that many hits. Right. But, you know, you'll, you can't have a perfect team. There's always holes in your team. And when you, sac- you sacrifice so much for Andrew Luck, and uh, it might take a while to build build up players around him. I think that same happened with John Elway. And the same thing has happened with a lot of awesome quarterbacks over the years where it took them a while to build the right offensive line around them. But that doesn't that doesn't change the fact that he's going to want to get outside of the pocket and run and put his head down, you know, sometimes and be it's athletic. Not the O-line either. Sometimes it's the inability to get the ball out. My rookie year, I got sacked 74 times in a half a season. That was my fault on most of those. A lot of them, some of them were the line, but it's like your maturity as a quarterback too, you get to learn when to get the ball out of your hand quick, when to get, get throw it out of bounds, or when to just get back to the line of scrimmage. You know, we talked yeah. about this as being unusual because he's a quarterback, but in a lot of ways, I think from the NFL's perspective, the NFL couldn't have asked for anything more in an early retirement. I mean, Luck did this 25-minute news conference on Saturday night after their preseason game in Indianapolis. He spoke off of notes that he was clearly preparing for a formal announcement the next day. He didn't say a single negative word about the NFL or about the sport. He never mentioned concussions or brain injury. He never mentioned the fear of developing cognitive problems for getting out early. And even his reference to his injuries, I thought were pretty oblique. It was about frustration, not concern about being healthy enough, you know, to play with his kids. And his wife is pregnant. And Luck was directly asked how much of this has to do with becoming a father. And he actually blew off the question. He's ah, not really. He made it sound like, you know, he loved everything else about the game. And you guys both made it very clear to me when I was with you in Denver that everything else about the game other than the game kind of sucks. 
<laughs> I mean, not everything about the game kind of sucks. Definitely. But yeah, but but he's just a very humble guy. I mean, you could just tell how much he cares about everybody in that organization. And he does not want to say one single bad word. He yeah. also no, understands that the psyche of a team is very fragile. And if he's on his way out, he's the leader of this team. And on his way out, he's saying, yeah, this game is pretty awful for you, man. Uh, I don't know why I'm doing it. So it's, I'm lucky I'm getting out of it, you know, right now. Well, what is his, what are his teammates yeah. going to think about that? You know? And so I think that he's just very aware that the news cycle will pick up on any little thing, negative thing that he says, anybody well, uh, people are going to attach themselves to anything negative that he says right now. So he's just the consummate professional. He's doing it the right way. To echo on what Nate just said, I mean, he's <laughs> he's not thinking about anybody but him, really himself, which you know he should be thinking about himself right now, not worried that you know he's going to let down the organization or or his teammates are are going to re- be mad at him or upset. You know, I bet I, I know that. Uh, from experience, when you retire, your teammates are kind of like, man, you, you, you're able to retire. That's awesome. I would be surprised if becoming a father is not something on his mind, um, where, you know, if he's in the middle of the season and his wife goes into labor, uh, he might even miss the birth of his child uh, or have to leave immediately afterwards to get back to practice because, you know, goddammit, you got to practice to play. Personally, if I would have had a child during the NFL season, the, there would have been craziness going around because i would have said see it for a few days i have a baby i will be fine come sunday leave me alone so i can have this moment with my family so i think that a lot of things other than just his injuries are weighing in on this he's a very like nate mentioned uh he thinks a lot he's a thinker he he has a lot of interests outside of football and I know I read something about him a long time ago where he'd put a hooded sweatshirt on and walk around in the visiting cities when his team, when the team would travel just to check things out. He reminds me of, of some people I played with, you included, Nate, that have a zest and a zeal for life. I think that's a really good point, Jake. I mean, Luck is a star, but he's also a kind of an outlier. He came from a very privileged background. His father, Oliver, was an NFL quarterback, but he went on to become a lawyer and moved into football management, and he was a D1 athletic director, and he's running the new XFL now. In a profile of Oliver Luck in Grantland a few years ago when he was the AD at West Virginia, his alma mater, he said, we always tell our student-athletes, don't let sports use you. You use it. You be selfish. You use it to get a free education. You use it to meet people. Don't let it chew you up. Clearly, Luck was conditioned to think in this sort of progressive, rational way about football, which I think, again, sets him apart from the way a lot of players would think. I have something I want to bounce off of that as a last question. When we interviewed John Urschel earlier this year, the Baltimore Ravens offensive lineman who left to get a PhD in math, I asked him, like, you know, a lot of times, like the more kind of troglodytic personnel people would be like, we don't like guys who have outside interests because they're not focused on football. Um, And I asked him, like, is that actually true? Should that be a red flag? He's like, yeah, kind of. Like, I had this other thing that I could go and do that I loved, and and it allowed me to get away from football. Um, Do you think that Lux Retirement, this guy who, you know, was an architecture major and has all these other things going on in his life, do you think that will give pause to, like, GMs or or whoever that, like, maybe we don't want guys who care about things other than the sport? I think it depends on the manner in which you care about it. 
um, see. I think if they were to go back and have the opportunity to draft Andrew Luck again, they probably would have done the same thing because he handled all of his other interests in a very respectful way. He didn't, for example, use his pulpit um, in the locker room to talk about these other things. You never heard him being asked a question about the game and said, no, 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 actually, I really want to talk about architecture right now. You know, he didn't do any of that. So he kept his interests to himself. And, uh, and I think teams are well aware that guys are interested in other things. It's the moment you use that platform to talk about those things that it becomes the dreaded D word. It's a distraction. And at that point, you got to go. You know, I mean, Colin Kaepernick is a great example of that. Um, Michael Sam, the player who came out as gay, uh, he used his platform to talk about another issue. And so teams didn't want him around. Whereas other guys, you know, who might have budding careers and something else, Plan, planned. Uh, if you just gotta wait, you gotta wait till you're done. They want football guys to be, you know, playing football when they're there, talking football. Uh, when you go home, you can be into whatever you want. But the minute you bring it to work, then you gotta go. Yeah, I mean, I am alarmed to hear Steve Berline, you know, chiming in in a negative way about luck. It's kind of like being a parent and and seeing another parent how they parent their child. You really never say anything because everybody does what they do, and that's their method. And Andrew Luck's mind is telling him it's time to go so shut your mouth if Berline anybody you should all just shut up and appreciate that the kid showed us what he had at Stanford and with the Colts and is now ready to go live a beautiful life and he's still in his 20s and he's got a, the bank account to go live however he wants so no negativity on my side of things anybody with a negative word about him for walking away from the game early that's silliness. So I'm, I'm excited for him. Um, I will miss seeing him play. But like uh, Nate just mentioned, they don't want you thinking outside of what's next. Practice, this script, the bus ride. Uh, we got the Colts this weekend. Nate, I always talk about you saying, you know, everything we need to learn to function as a normal human being and, and normal c- civilian is right across six inches of concrete above us. And we're never allowed to really go up there and learn how to be managers, marketers, salesmen or anything. They want you to be a football player and football player only. So I applaud Andrew Luck. I wish him the best. And I think he made a great decision. Jake Plummer played in the NFL from 1997 to 2006. He is a thinker and has no negativity. Jake, thank you. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. You should have said he was my holder. And with Stefan Solberg. <laughs> Nate Jackson played for the Broncos from 2003 to 2008. He's been carrying Fatsis ever since. Nate, thank you, man. I'll hold you to Fatsis. Thank you, Nate. Thank you, guys. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The Chicago Bears were bounced from the playoffs last January when Cody Parkey's game-winning 43-yard field goal attempt was tipped at the line of scrimmage, hit the left upright, dropped onto the crossbar, and fell the wrong way. Since then, the Bears do not seem to have moved past what Chris Collinsworth on NBC dubbed the double doink. The team, of course, cut Parkey, as teams do when kickers do wrong. Then, during a rookie camp in the spring, the Bears held a tryout featuring nine kickers 
Coaches amped up the pressure by making the gaggle kick in total silence in front of the team and media from, yes, 43 yards away. And according to a crazy story in Sports Illustrated last week by Kalen Collar, the Bears posted results of the competition as it was happening, including a secret scoring system and weird comments. One kicker was told he needed to improve his miles per hour off the foot. And after all that, In the end, it looks like the Bears are going to start the season with a kicker who was not even part of that crazy tryout, a kicker they had to trade a draft pick to get. My miles per hour off the foot no doubt were lacking when I kicked in Broncos camp in 2006. So to help make sense of the Bears' obsession with one failed kick, we are joined by an actual former NFL kicker, Billy Cundiff. In addition to kicking for six teams over 14 years, Billy was a guest at a Hang Up and Listen live show in 2012. Welcome back to the program, Billy. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Well, we wanted to talk to you about this because you experienced the range of kicker life in the NFL. Like Cody Parkey, you missed a big field goal in the playoffs, and you also attended a lot of tryout camps the way that itinerant kickers do. So let's start there. What is a normal camp like, and what did you think when you read about what the Bears did? Well, there is no such thing as a normal camp. Let's just be honest. (laughs) The NFL is a different beast. But yeah, I I have seen a range. Obviously, the best camps were the ones where were quiet. You maybe had one guy to compete against, and you kind of knew what you're going to get each day because things are charted out for you. But uh, I have been involved in some really weird tryouts that were similar to what you're talking about, where you know guys don't really know what's going on. You're kept in the dark and you know you kind of think that the guy who made the most is going to get signed and a lot of times that's not the case the bears camp is this strange combination for an outsider of kind of like football man machismo where they're putting the kickers on the all these pressure situations and making them perform in front of their teammates but the thing that seems unusual to me is that they also brought in all of these like specialized kicking consultants to do all this like tracking of the trajectory and the miles per hour. Does that part seem weird to you? The kind of combination of the like, you know, you got to tough it out and be a man in front of the team. And then also like doing all the like tracking and kind of advanced tech stuff. Yeah. I mean, it it makes sense, right? Because like the, the way the league is trending, they're trying to use technology. So I get it. Right. And it provides more things that they can measure and they can kind of define what, what it is that they're looking for. But I'm with you guys. Like it just the, the mentality seems so strange to me. Like, are they going over like maybe an interception that the quarterback threw early in the game that maybe would have, you know, they would have scored a touchdown and wouldn't need the field goal at the end? Are they going to do the same play and just going to run some kind of sprint out to the flat from a fullback or a tight end type guy? Like, they keep going over the same play over and over. They don't. And so it just seems to me like these guys unfortunately are are like it's 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 a nightmare situation they can't seem to get over their this nightmare that's reoccurring in their head almost every day yeah and th- that is the takeaway here um and the weird thing to me is that it's the coaches that are playing these head games i think and in my experience and in talking to to kickers that other players the rest of the team generally is more appreciative and understanding of what kickers go through than it seems that the coaches in this situation certainly have been. Yeah, and which is strange, right? Because the head coach for the Bears has gotten a lot of publicity, I guess you could say, from his relationship with players. And he's kind of like a, a player's coach. And I'm, I know I've got a friend that plays up there and you know, he loves him. 
And so it just seems like this, they're, they just don't go together, this kind of situation where he can't let one mistake go. And they obviously needed a, a scapegoat and they got it. But now I think what they're going to realize is that, you know, Cody's a really good kicker. And, you know, they let Robbie go before that. So they've kind Robbie of started Gold. to create, yeah, Robbie Gold. So they've started to create their own problems. You know, Connor Barth did a good job. It's just people are expecting perfection. And sometimes it just takes a while to figure out the, the climate and the situations of a tough stadium. Cody Parkey missed for an NFL kicker circa 2018-2019. He missed like more kicks than I think teams generally accept. It wasn't just the one in the playoffs. He had a game where he hit the upright four times where I think if you were trying to do that, Billy, you you wouldn't be able to do that. <laughs> do you think there's something to be said for the fact that maybe they just needed to move on to another guy because, you know, maybe the team wouldn't have confidence in him. The fans didn't have confidence in him. Or do you feel like his track record, even if it was an off year, warranted him getting another shot? Well, it's two different trains of thought. I mean, I understand why teams get rid of guys. Like, it's a clean break, and you just kind of move on. But obviously, the behavior of the coaching staff doesn't really support the <laughs> this that, that, that thought process even a little bit right you get rid of the guy then you should just be okay well we took care of the problem now let's move forward and let's go win our championship because we've now solved the one issue that we had so it's <laughs> yeah i always use nate kading as an example like yeah. nate was a great it was a great kicker unfortunately nate missed a couple big kicks in playoff games like multiple playoff games but you know the Chargers stuck with him because they're like hey nate's a great kicker he's going to score points for us we need it we're a high scoring offense and they kind of rode that wave, and sure enough, and they got really close a couple times, but they didn't they didn't get over the hump. But nonetheless, they stuck it out with him, and I feel like that's probably a model that works better because it encourages guys to be really confident and say, sometimes, uh, sometimes you miss you miss a kick. Even I know when people know you're not not trying to, and you just gotta figure a way to get past it. Well, and that's a good way to transition to your big missed kick, Billy. It was a 32-yard field goal against the Patriots. It would have sent the 2011 AFC Championship game into overtime, and the reaction from fans and the media was awful. I know you went through a very difficult time after that, but the Ravens brought you back, and John Harbaugh said that he respected the way that you responded to the miss, and you bounced back from it. The Bears obviously didn't publicly offer Parkey that courtesy, and even though you lost your job the next training camp in 2012, it was to Justin Tucker, who has gone on to be the all-time leader in field goal percentage, so no shame there, Billy. And I was looking at that list of top field goal percentages. I mean, every guy on that list has been roundly mocked, vilified, you know, Robbie Gold, you mentioned. I mean, he's on that list at almost 88%. Everybody on that list gets criticized. And this is obviously inherent in what the kicker goes through. Is there any way to break that cycle? Or is it just so baked into the game because of how kickers are viewed that we're stuck with situations like this? NFL media people love cliches. So I think this one is going to probably survive just because it's, it's easy fodder. And it's you know a low-hanging fruit or whatever whatever term you want to use. Uh, I think players don't view the game the same way that they used to. And I completely understand. Like my dad's NFL, you know, the kicker was generally a foreign-born player that played soccer, didn't know much about football, and he just really stood out because he was like five three, and the rest of the people were six four, and off he went. But you know, guys, the the game's changed. Uh, most of the guys that are kicking in the league now, at least you know, even when I was playing, they were good athletes, like multiple sport athletes in high school generally played another position in football. Uh, so I think within the the player realm, I think it's it's completely different. But I think outside, of people have a tendency to 
you know, pick the easy scapegoat uh, and, you know, like you said, vilify somebody. I mean, it's, it's no different than any other endeavor in life. Like you can either listen to context and you can try to absorb the entire situation, or you can just watch your, you know, your short little snippet of a talking point and, and then move on. And there's a lot of people who just prefer the latter. I have some sympathy for the idea that kickers should be treated differently than other players because it's a different position than any other position in football. There are certainly a lot of similarities, but there are obviously a huge number of key differences. It is so mental. It is so different than the activity that other football players are engaging in. And so I think the Bears, it's odd. It's not that they have the wrong idea that like we need to bring a lot of some new thinking to bear. We need to try different things. We need to bring in different guys and kind of think differently about it. It's just interesting that an organization that has that mentality could then go about doing the execution so, so badly. So badly. Well, part of part of that was right. <laughs> Thank you for laughing, Billy. They, they were on the hook for paying Cody Parkey three and a half million dollars. So their goal going into this tryout process was we have to bring in someone who will play for the minimum, for the league minimum. So that's why they brought in nine kickers that no one had ever ever heard of, six of whom were rookies, were undrafted free agent rookies. So that's where this completely collapses because you're going to put all of this pressure, this weirdo pressure that will create a different kind of media. None of them were there. Focus. They had nothing to do with they it. They had nothing to do with any of it. Well, and Billy also made the great point about we don't look at Mitch Trubisky's screw-ups sure. from earlier that game. But like the thing that happened on that kick was that the line there there was pressure from the Eagles and a dude got his hand the on the on the ball. So why are they not forcing all of the people on field goal protection to go out in front of the whole team <laughs> at practice and make sure that nobody on the de- defense can like penetrate that area? Why don't we see that, Billy? That's where my head was at. <laughs> I didn't want to say that out loud, but I guess you guys did it for me. Yeah, they should do that. And like all the kick, they should bring in extra kickers just to stand around the offensive line the, the, and taunt them. You know? Yeah, it's, you know, and it's a tough deal, right? Because a game winning field goal, uh, guys rush harder. They do like the, the, the team just brings more intensity. But to your point, like if the ball's not tipped to the line of scrimmage, then maybe they do have their guy to blame, right? But there's too many other things that happened to where everybody's hands had blood on them. Right. And instead of saying, look, it wasn't Cody Parkey's fault, the ball was tipped and there was a breakdown in our special teams operation, they left the guy to hang out to dry because it was an easy way to scapegoat him. Yeah, but it makes for a good story, though, right? Like, yeah. this is uh, <laughs> when I read that Sports Illustrated article, I was just like, this reminds me of the weirdness of so many different tryouts that I had. So at least they've provided some good drama for the NFL. Season. All right. What's, what was the weirdest tryout that you attended? Uh, it's fine. My wife and I were trying to talk. We were talking about this last night. I had one tryout, well, two tryouts, which were almost bachelor style, right? Like you had your tryout, like when I was with a tryout for the Chiefs. This would have been 2006, 2007. Sorry, it was the 2007 season. I didn't play. Late in the season, I was going to, uh, I tried out against like John Carney and maybe it's like, who else was there? One other guy. But anyway, so we had a tryout and they sent one guy home and they sent John and I to the hotel and they said in the morning, <laughs> to the somebody's going to pretty much. 
<laughs> and so they told both of us said, uh, you know, we'll give you a call. And tomorrow one of you is going to, uh, we're going to pick up and take you to the stadium. And one we're going to pick up and take you to the, to the airport. And so I literally went to bed being like, I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. And then I woke up and I was uh, at the airport. So you see how that one turned out. So, so was there like, oh, there was like a, a stretch limo waiting for Carney <laughs> and a shuttle bus waiting for you. <laughs> Pretty much. Like, that's what it felt like. You're like, oh, I was so close, but it was just so awkward. And the same thing happened when I was with the Browns. Uh, when I broke back in league in 09, they tried a bunch of us out. Shane Andrews and I were the two that stayed. And then they're like, we're just going to try to figure this out. We're like, okay, when, do, when are you going to know? They said, well, the plane leaves tomorrow for Baltimore, and we've got to walk through at 9.30, so we'll probably try to make a decision before then. So Shane and I went out and grabbed dinner that night, and we just hung out like, man, this is super weird. Like, they're not telling us anything. And then this time, I was actually the guy who got to go get signed by the team, and Shane, unfortunately, went to the to the airport. So it was like, yeah, plenty of those. I mean, I've had seven kicker tryouts, and – I, uh, you know, kicked in like 45 mile per hour winds where one way guys kick like 90 yard uh, kickoffs and then the, uh, 30 yards going the other way. So it's everything you could ever think that could happen. I've, I've seen when you're in that environment, are you rooting for the other guys to miss? No, I took my, I, I approached my, my kicking much different than other guys. Like a lot of guys would watch and they would know everybody that made everybody missed. I was a high jumper in high school. And so what I realized is that like when my mentality was, I didn't care who else was in the game. It was all just about like my one attempt. I was trying to get over the bar and you get three attempts in, at each height and high jump. So that's what I took. My mentality I was like, no, I'm going to worry about whatever's next. Do I know where the next field goal is at? Okay. I don't. Then let's just stay, stay settled. Try to get your breath under control and make sure you're focused on what you need to do. Before we finish, I wanted to just mention one, other kicker who had kind of the opposite trajectory. Garrett Hartley for the Saints made a field goal in overtime to win the NFC Championship game for the Saints in 2009. He made three field goals more than 40 yards to help the Saints win the Super Bowl that year. Um, And then he just kind of, they gave him a big contract extension and then he just kind of went out of the league. Like he missed some kicks, but making the big kick in the playoffs, even in the Super Bowl, doesn't guarantee you anything. And so it's hard to even, you know, Cody Parkey could have made that kick and then he could have been scapegoated for something he did in, you know, week three this year. Yeah, it's I think just it, it, nothing is is guaranteed for, for the kickers. No, and I think, uh, Billy, it takes a while till you get to the point where you're like Vinatieri or Guskowski or players that end up having 15 to 20 year careers where your mistakes are forgiven, not just by fans, because of your accumulated body of work, but more important by the coaching staff in the front well, office. Well, who other than those two and Justin Tucker would even fit in that category? Well, there's like, a lot of guys. I mean, Jason Elam certainly fit into that category. But I mean, in the current in NFL, Denver. there's maybe like you can count them on one hand, guys with who can afford to miss kicks on a, you know week to week. Yeah, but even then, like if you think about Vinatieri, like he he had the paid the Patriots let him go. Right, yeah. like at the time, they, they they were like, "Look, hey, thanks for three game winners or two game, whatever it was." But uh, yeah, we we don't want you anymore. And then, so then he went to the Colts, and everybody thought he was kind of on on the last leg. And he's been there for what over ten years, yeah, longer than he was with the Patriots. <laughs> exactly. Like, so there's just I think it's such a such a short term model, right? They are trying to squeeze the orange for as much juice as they can get out. When they look at it and they think they can't squeeze anymore, then it's time to move on. And I just think regardless of what your accumulated track record, if they don't think you can perform, 
then they're, they'll have they have no problem moving on. They're not going to give guys a pass and say, you know, I think he might be on the edge, but uh, you know, we'll let him let him try again. They they'd rather be, at least in my opinion, they'd rather get rid of talent a year early than a year late. Billy Cundiff kicked for six different teams in the National Football League in a 14-year career. There were a couple of years there where you weren't in the league, though. Billy, quick, what were the six teams? Cowboys, Saints, Browns, Ravens, Redskins, Bills. Got them in order. Very impressive that you can remember. Had to jog the memory. It's been a while. Billy, thanks a lot for coming back. Thanks, guys, for having me. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before we get to our conversation about the National Women's Soccer League in our hometown, Washington Spirit, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll be joined by Slate's Nick Green to talk about the poetry of XFL team names and team descriptions. You'll want to stick around to hear more about the St. Louis Battlehawks. It's worth it. If you want to hear that, you're not a member of Slate Plus, you can sign up for just $35 for the first year. You can do that signing up at slate.com slash hangoutplus. On Saturday night at Audi Field here in Washington, D.C., the Washington Spirit of the National Women's Soccer League drew a record crowd for the Spirit of 19,871 paid for their 2-1 victory against the Orlando Pride. Three of the fans in attendance were me, Stefan Fatsis, and our friend, Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer for Slate, also host of The Waves and Outward Podcasts. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. So we went as a group from Slate. We bought 29 tickets collectively. So we're really the reason for that record-breaking turnout. Yeah. Without us, it would have been 19,842. <laughs> Not a record. No, I think that probably still would have been a record. I had never been to a Washington Spirit game. You, Christina, had never been to a Washington Spirit game, correct? Correct. Why did you want to go, and what did you make of the experience? Well... <laughs> As you know, Josh, as my editor, uh, I wrote a lot of pieces about the Women's World Cup team this season. A lot of people from our office also got into the Women's World Cup. And I wanted to go in part because I was a new fan of a bunch of the players on the Spirit and the Pride who had played on the women's national team. And, you know, I wanted to give women's sports a try. I don't usually like going to sports games. I'll go maybe once a year to a professional sports game, but it's mostly about hanging out with people. So I thought going with Slate, I'd be hanging out with people, which I already (laughs) knew that I liked. I'd be seeing people who I knew that I liked, and I would be supporting a league I believe in. Right. So, I mean, it was a good game, two to one. A lot of the stars didn't play. Rose Lavelle, Mallory Pugh, Alex Morgan, 
all were out with injuries, although Allie Krieger and Ashlyn Harris from the national team were there. They definitely were there. They and were they there, played. screwing up in the case of Ashlyn Harris and, uh, in a major way. She had a couple good saves, She though. did have a couple of good saves, if that's what you want to focus on, but I don't. Um, and it felt special, the night, the atmosphere. The crowd was huge. It is a beautiful stadium. It's DC United's stadium, soccer only. And, you know, Stefan, afterwards, the coach and the owner went on the field and thanked everyone and kind of acknowledged that this was a big moment for the sport, the franchise, for soccer in DC. Yeah, and I have been to a bunch of spirit games. I've been taking my daughter when she was younger, particularly sort of between the ages of 8 and 13, to their regular home, which is out in the suburbs at something called the Soccerplex in a little 4,500-seat sort of stadium-ish thing. The name like kind of connotes Little League. Yes. Soccerplex. Right. And, I mean, you're not going to attract – 20 and 30-somethings who are the natural market for professional soccer in the United States, as they have been for Major League Soccer, the men's league, if you're playing 45 minutes away from downtown, which is where the Spirit normally play. So this was an experiment for this team to see if you can attract a big enough audience in a facility that is going to cost some money to play in because they are not tenants there, obviously. This is D.C. United's facility. So a lot of people will say, well, why don't the Spirit just play there all the time? And the reason is that it costs a lot of money to turn the lights on in an arena. The rental fee is high. You have to pay the the concession people and the ticket takers and all the employees. So a team like the Spirit either needs to be in partnership with the tenant, DC United in this case, or they have to demonstrate that it's possible to break even or do better there. And I think what this game showed was that there is at least initially a market that this is worth continuing to test because maybe this is viewed as a one-off, mm-hmm. like, oh, the World Cup's over, let's go support the Spirit, they're in, they're in the city now. But I have a hunch that the fan base that this team normally attracts would grow for two reasons. I think the, the suburban families with girls that play would still want to go to these games and you would get a much bigger cohort of inner city dwellers who just like soccer, period. Um, and I think that's what they're trying to figure out. They're going to play another game at Audi Field next Christina month. Christina will be I'm there. also going to that game. <laughs> Excellent. So my friends and I, we had like a big text chain going during the Women's World Cup. Everyone's a big fan of Megan Rapino, including my one friend who never watches sports but has been having a recurring dream that she's best friends with Megan Rapino. Oh, that's awesome. So she really wanted to go see them, you know, the spirit play the rain in September. And yeah, I agree with you that this felt a little bit like a victory tour and maybe not replicable in just a regular season. People are going to see their favorite players who became celebrities on the women's national team during the World Cup, almost like they would go to see a Carly Rae Jepsen concert or something like that. For me, I've been following Ashlyn Harris on Instagram for years. (laughs) This was my first time to actually see her play because she didn't play in the Women's World Cup. So that was part of the draw. But also... I have never had a social experience at a sports game like I had at this one. Even as I was approaching Audi Field, I was kind of subconsciously girding myself for the discomfort of being at a sports game where it's like a preponderance of male energy, which I usually try to pick and choose selectively the moments when I put myself in position for the preponderance of male energy. This this room is really triggering right now. 
And then I realized as I was walking in and I saw like three queer women who I just know and didn't know weren't going to be at the game that like this was going to be a completely different experience. Yes. Where in addition to not being surrounded by boisterous, annoying, like sometimes overly drunk male sports fans, I was like in a position where I felt like I was in my own culture and a space where I felt comfortable and I ran into like 15 other people that I knew there. I know that that will not happen at every women's soccer game that I go to, but it felt a lot more welcoming to me. Like I didn't have to uh, feel like an outsider at yeah. the place where I was visiting. I think there was a, a public w- proposal of two women on the, on the, on the scoreboard. Cam. Yeah. yeah. Is there a kids camera jumbotron at the soccerplex? No. Okay, so you're There's not going to get screen. that. There's a proposal. screen, but you're not going to get like that giant, yeah, jumbotron thing. And there were happening. people waving. You know, the Spirit Squadron, which is the fan club, were waving rainbow flags. They were waving. They were waving a trans pride flag. I felt like I was just going to an extension of my normal social life, yeah. which was extremely pleasant and fun. I have to say that that is a hugely important factor in the future success of this league and other women's sports leagues simply because it is a welcoming environment. The one reason I have loved when I discovered that, oh, you know, my daughter likes going to these games, that I've loved going to them. And we've now been to three World Cups together, my daughter and I, in addition to all those games out when she wow. was younger at the, at the, at the soccer plex. Um, that it's fun. It's, it's, it's calm. It's chill. You can cheer when you want for the reasons you want and you don't feel, you know, imposed upon by the rest of the fan base. I mean, it's really, a, it's, it's a, you know, it is the most sort of diverse, mixed, um, welcoming professional sports atmosphere that you could ask for. This is the future liberals want. Stefan, <laughs> sporting, sporting events where everyone it. feels welcome. <laughs> gets there are along. rainbow flags yeah. everywhere. No, it was awesome. It was I will say the, the rainbow flag and the trans pride flag, the fact that there were so many queer people there, who some of whom I knew, some of whom I didn't, but perhaps I will get to know as I <laughs> attend future games, made me f- feel even more convinced that it makes sense for them to play at Audi Field instead of out in the suburbs. Because if we're thinking about who lives in a city versus who lives in the suburbs, just generally, I think that more of the people who are new fans of the women's soccer teams and the NWSL right. are going to be living in right. the city and, and I, won't have cars and aren't able to get out there. Right. Meanwhile, and th- that's the point that I was making earlier. Like, right. I don't think you're going to you're not going to lose the suburban fan base by moving into the city, but you're going to attract a much bigger fan base from being there. Stefan, what do we know about the owner of the team? This guy, Steve Baldwin, he was quoted in the Washington Post the other day saying that um, forget equal pay, the women should be paid more than the men. Um, he has upgraded the team's locker room. He has like done things for the players, like the kind of perks that you hear that um, players and men's leagues have kind of come to expect. Um, and he's also talking about we need bigger corporate partnerships, um, and it's going to be up to him to decide where they play in the in the future, whether this yeah. Audi Field thing is workable. Uh, he's a tech executive from Northern Virginia. He bought the team last year. The previous owner had alienated lots of players, including Ashlyn Harris and Allie Krieger, who had played for the Spirit for a few seasons. Um, this is the guy that, that um, the previous owner had – refused to let Megan Rapino and her team 
be on the field for the singing of the national anthem because Rapino had knelt during the national anthem. So rather than have the players on the field when Rapino was visiting the soccer plex, he kept the teams in the locker room. So this is clearly a step forward. This is a guy with vision. This is a guy with business connections. And this is a guy that seems to really genuinely care. That would have been more of a conflict for for you and for all of us. If like yeah. that guy was still the owner of the team, yeah. like you want yeah. to support the league and the players, but yeah. the guy seems like a, a major dingus. Yeah, he was. Um, so this guy seems to have the right approach. What he said when he came on the field after the game wasn't sort of super inspiring or revelatory, but it was a really nice gesture. It I was mean, really interesting. I've never heard anything yeah. like that before at a sports game where it felt like he was thanking us for coming out to a fundraiser. Yeah. He was like, thank you for, for supporting this amazing team. We're really building something here, which honestly I feel kind of two ways about. Like, obviously it's better for the guy to be doing that and talking about the import of a vibrant and profitable women's soccer league where the players are treated well. On the other hand, I don't like being made to feel like I'm supporting a charity case when I go to see a professional athletes play and also giving my money to Audi Field, the super rich guy who bought the team and a bunch of other like corporate interests. Well, that's the big longstanding question with professional women's sports is that the fact is that these leagues, no matter what sport you're talking about, have a history of insolvency of like not enduring and so i think um the reality is that for them to succeed people need to go to the games and support the league and to show that there's a constituency and a fan base and the long-term question here is does this last beyond the afterglow of the world of the world cup and so i guess that's a question for you um do you pledge here today right now (laughs) like can we sign you up for a season ticket plan no like what do you think about that that question. Maybe it's just impossible to answer because we're still in the afterglow yeah. of the World Cup. I'm optimistic that it will last beyond the post-World Cup glow just because having now been to one game that I attended because of the after World Cup glow, first of all, I realize how easy it is to get to Audi Field, which <laughs> I had never been to before. So if they continue to play there, I will definitely continue to see them. I had a new experience, a completely positive experience at a sports game, which was new to me, um, besides the very long lines that we had to wait to get into the field. Um, You know, perhaps they can find a way to fix that before they play the rain. And I'm also finding out that I have a lot of friends who love women's sports and who go to the WNBA games here in D.C. to see the Mystics and who do go out to Soccerplex. I had no idea that I had friends who were going out there. And so now I'm realizing that we actually can make this a part of our regular social life, going to see these games. And they're not that expensive either. I mean, if the league is to continue and make a profit, maybe the tickets will have to um, get a little more expensive. But... I had so much fun that I definitely will want to do it again. It's interesting you mentioned the ticket prices because that is an issue. Um, can a family of four, which is clearly part of the target audience here, afford to spend 50 or 60 bucks for a ticket, each ticket, to go to these games where out in the suburbs they're charging you know, 20 or 30 bucks? I mean, that is a big difference. Um, but I think on a macro level, what's important is that that the league seems to be appreciating that there are other ways to capitalize on the 
post-World Cup boom in a real way that may have lasting effects. And I think that playing one game here is great, playing another game here is great. And whether that means, you know, creating a real partnership with DC United where they buy a minority interest in the team, which would reduce the sort of cost of renting out a place like Audi Field, um, you know, they're going to have to come up with creative solutions to, to make sure that they can keep that audience that came to this first game coming back again and again and again and again. Last thing for me, as I'm curious from both of you, like one conclusion you could come away from from this game with a huge crowd and the fact that Lavelle Pugh and Alex Morgan didn't play is like maybe fans don't even care about the national team players. I actually am not sure I believe that because I think this game, because it was the first one at Audi Field after the World Cup, was going to get a big crowd and people bought their tickets well in advance not knowing who is going to play. But do you actually think that this shows that people just want to support the sport and support whoever's playing in the local team rather than just caring about seeing their fave Ashlyn Harris? No, I think that people do care. <laughs> and and by people, I guess I mean me and my friends, which is the only sort of uh, focus group that I've been involved in. But I don't think that mm-hmm. I would have gotten 12 people. That's almost enough for the group discount. We really should have gotten three more to get the group discount. Every single person on our queer text chain agreed to a social plan, which has never happened in the course of our text chain. That wouldn't have happened if Megan Rapino wasn't going to be coming to D.C. So... I think, I mean, who knows what will happen after that? Maybe we'll all have so much fun that we won't care who the spirit is playing. I was disappointed to hear that Lavelle, Pugh, and Morgan weren't going to be playing. If Ashlyn Harris wasn't going to be goalkeeping, I probably would have walked out then and there. (laughs) That's not true, but... If Ashlyn Harris wasn't goalkeeping, the spirit might not have won, though. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. Yeah, I don't think that it's irrelevant. I think that as I was walking in, I did hear people talking about how disappointed they were that certain players were injured, especially people who had probably Mm -hmm. bought their tickets around when the Women's World Cup was happening. So, um, yeah, I guess that's another variable that... I mean, it seems like they're already dealing with it, though. This is why those are the only two games being played at Audi Field, the one where against the prize in the rain, right? Maybe. Um, that could just be a function of the schedule. Yeah. But there, there are two important issues here. And one is that Lavelle was there. We saw her like mingling with fans in the suite and, and after the game signing autographs and stuff. And like the high school girls that I was with were like, oh my God, there's Rose Lavelle. They were psyched to just see her, to even know that she, she was playing. there even though she wasn't playing. And I didn't hear any grumbling in the stands. You know? But the, the bigger issue, I think, for this league is going to be that if they can demonstrate that they can play in an arena like this. And by the way, over the weekend, another one of the teams uh, Sky Blue FC, which plays in a tiny little place in New Jersey and has the worst attendance in the league and has for years, played in the New York Red Bulls MLS arena in New Jersey and drew nearly 10,000 fans, which was a, a, a franchise record. Um, the other issue for these for this league in particular is they're going to have to, and this goes hand in glove with playing in better facilities, they're going to have to make sure that they can retain the national team players and up-and-coming players so that there are draws and reach a point where they can also attract other internationally well-known players to make the Women's League in the United States a destination, where the risk right now is that players of quality are under threat that they will at some point go overseas. There's an arrangement right now that keeps the national team players here. That's not necessarily going to last forever. The league is going to have to try to find ways to make sure that the player pool is as strong as it can possibly be so that fans like you and me and Josh will continue to come. 
And I think they should all take social media lessons from the people who became celebrities during the Women's World Cup because the more emotionally and personally invested you are in those players, the more likely you're going to be to buy a ticket. So you're saying that all the NWSL players should drink a lot and, and post <laughs> have a cute, live video? No, have a cute dog like Rose Lavelle. Yeah. Or that too. That. Mostly that. Mostly uh, that, yeah. Christina Cotarucci writes for Slate, and you can listen to her on the Outward and Waves podcasts when she's not here talking about sports. Thanks, Christina. Thanks for having me. And now it is time for After Balls. And while our discussion of the NWSL and the Washington Spirit was reasonably comprehensive and thorough, we did not mention who scored the goals. The goal scorers were, for the Orlando Pride, the legendary Marta. Stefan. I was. The legendary Marta. We got to watch Marta play in person. That was cool. Yeah. And the game-winning goal for your Washington Spirit, scored by Ashley Hatch on a header. But the first goal, when Ashlyn Harris, I don't know what Ashlyn Harris was doing, but she got her pocket picked. Sure did. Her foot pocket picked. Crystal Thomas, forward for the Spirit, swiped the ball away from Harris. It was a nice moment. For Thomas, not yeah. so nice for Harris. What can you tell us about Crystal Thomas? 25 years old, went to Georgetown, scored a bunch of goals for Georgetown, game winner in an NCAA quarterfinal. But more impressive to me, she got to play in Iceland as a professional with Valur. She also played for the Norwegian team Medkila 2, who play in the top Serien. That would be the top Serie League <laughs> in Norway. Crystal Thomas. Back where she played in college, scoring cool goals. Way to go, Crystal. Good headband, too. Stefan, what's your Crystal Thomas? Speaking of kickers, Josh, two segments ago, women's soccer national team star Carly Lloyd attended a joint training camp between the Philadelphia Eagles and Baltimore Ravens last week. Lloyd kicked some field goals. She started at 25 yards and moved back, eventually making one with Ravens punter Sam Cook holding from 55 yards away. This the- could have been the like convergence of all three topics if Carly Lloyd had just retired. But in fact... We're only getting kicking in women's soccer. For shame. True. All right, the clip of Lloyd banging that kick went viral. Her tweet, which ended with emoji of a football and a bullseye, hashtag 55, has more than 20,000 likes. Many, many commenters said that the Bears should sign her, bringing the segments together again. Others said she would be the first female kicker in the NFL. Legendary football executive Gil Brandt who was just inducted into the Hall of Fame, combined the two ideas. Honestly, I don't think it will be long before we see a woman break through this NFL barrier, he tweeted. I'd give her an honest tryout if I were, say, the Bears. Lloyd fueled the speculation afterward, telling Grant Wall and Luis Miguel Echegaray on Sports Illustrated's Planet Football podcast that she had received some unspecified inquiries. I've definitely got some people talking, she said. Lloyd's 55-yarder was indeed impressive, but no one should be surprised. I mean, she is one of the best female soccer players in the world, and she has a big leg. Remember that she scored that ridiculous goal in the 2015 World Cup final against Japan from just inside midfield. The ball traveled about 57 yards in the air. As a former kicker, I will gently point out that on the 55-yarder, Lloyd took five steps on her approach, which is not how you kick a field goal, with focused training, she no doubt could transform herself into a consistent place kicker. To say, though, that she could walk into the NFL would be to demean kickers 
who spend hundreds and hundreds of hours training to master the art and craft. It's not that easy. Lloyd wasn't the first national team player to try kicking footballs. Back in 2000, Mia Hamm made a couple of 50-yarders during a Kansas City Chiefs camp. And at halftime of a Chiefs preseason game, she and teammates Shannon McMillan and Siri Mullenix, quote, nailed eight of nine field goals, including two of three from 40 yards away, to electrify the crowd, the St. Joseph's News Press reported. It was electric. The first actual female place kicker is believed to be Laverne Wise, who kicked for Atmore High School in Alabama in 1939 and 1940. According to a 2013 story in the Atmore Advance, the team had a good kicker, so the coach only let Wise kick extra points if the team was ahead by 20 or more. The implication being that Wise was not the good kicker? That is the implication. It's rude. Rude. The first woman to score a point in a college game was Liz Heaston for Willamette University in the NAIA in 1997. Probably the best-known woman kicker is Katie Nida, who became the first woman to score in a Division 1A game for New Mexico in 2003. And in 2007, Abby Vestal kicked for the Kansas City Coyotes with a K of the Indoor American Professional Football League, becoming the first woman to play in a pro league. These days, pretty much every year, you can find profiles of girls who kick for their high school teams. In June 2017, under the headline, Is This the NFL's First Female Player? Bleacher Report profiled Becca Long, who had earned a scholarship to kick at Division II Adams State in Colorado. Long redshirted her first year and then tore tendons in her plant foot, left Adams State, and according to a local TV story that I watched, was hoping to resume kicking elsewhere. Let's finish with a fictional kicker, Josh, from the 1991 film Necessary Roughness. Have you seen that? Kathy Ireland. Yes. It's the story of the Texas State Armadillos. They're returning from NCAA sanctions with a misfit band of players, including former soccer player Lucy Draper, played by supermodel Kathy Ireland. I somehow missed the film when it came out, but I watched a couple of scenes involving I know. Shame on me. Um, I watched a couple of scenes involving Ireland. In the first one, she takes her first kicks in front of the coaches and players. Her form is atrocious. The balls that she kicks wouldn't have traveled 10 yards, but through the miracle of editing, split the uprights from 40. Better or worse than Gary Cooper in Pride of the Yankees? Oh, I think worse, actually. Possibly worse. <laughs> Gary Cooper, better kicker. Uh, the coaches are slack-jawed. The players make lewd comments about Kathy Ireland, Lucy Draper. In the second scene that I watched, Ireland is called on to kick a game-tying field goal against inexplicably a team of convicts <laughs> during a rainstorm of biblical proportions. They wandered into the longest yard by mistake. <laughs> there are longest yard overlaps here, intentional. Clearly, let's listen. Field goal on the snap. Ready? Break. Blake, spot the ball for a 34 yard try. Gonna do it. All right, Miss, let's go. Come on, kid. Hey, Sugar! Don't get nervous. Is that the only way you can score? Shut up, or you will anger me. Yeah. Clock stopped with just three seconds left. There's time for just one last play. It's good! I'm an old tie! Welcome to football. 
Welcome to football! She can take care of herself! Yo, man, we died! Oh, my God. All right, what happens at the end there is Kathy Ireland gets decked by former NFL player Ben Davidson, reprising his role in The Longest Yard, and then Ireland kicks Davidson in the testicles. Was the announcer Rob Schneider? Yes. Wow. It was a cast of cast of impressive cast. It was a cast. <laughs> it was a cast. All right. I have no doubt that Carly Lloyd in her debut with the Bears in November will not need to kick any opposing players in the testicles. Uh, all right. Prediction. If, if you're if you're confident. Josh, what's your Crystal Thomas? Last week at the PGA Tours season-ending championship event, six people were hurt in a lightning strike. One of them said, I felt like I was in a major car accident, like I was blindsided by a car. I guess like not maybe too literal to say it felt like I was struck by lightning. But while they say what they say about the chances of getting struck by lightning twice, last week I also took note of a tweet from Ryan Spader, who goes by the Ace of Spader on Twitter, Uh, That tweet read, Ray Caldwell was one out shy of a complete game victory 100 years ago, August 24th, 1919, when he was struck by lightning and knocked out. This is intriguing. Uh, Ray Caldwell turns out a very interesting character, even if you don't get into the lightning incident. I will get into the lightning incident, but even if I did not get into the lightning incident, he would be interesting. That is because uh, what I learned from a great long entry on Caldwell. It's part of the Society for American Baseball Research's bio project. They do great work there. Um, This entry was written by Steve Steinberg. He's a historian of early 20th century baseball. Uh, That entry begins, Ray Caldwell was a pitcher of immense talent who had an enormous appetite for nightlife and a weakness for alcohol. Caldwell was the best pitcher for the New York Yankees in 1914, a year which the Yankees were not very good. But that same year, Steinberg writes, Caldwell disappeared during a road trip out west. Among the euphemisms that were used in the press that year about Caldwell's behavior were that, quote, he is one of those fellows who cannot say no, and that per sporting life, he had the, quote, occasional flirtation with that which is amber and foamy. By 1917, the Washington Post was writing that Caldwell, who was still with the Yankees, is an example of a great pitcher going to ruin by his failure to take care of himself. The following year, Steinberg writes, Yankees manager Miller Huggins assigned two private detectives to Ray Caldwell to keep him out of trouble and away from bars, yet he was often able to elude them. That offseason, Caldwell was traded to the Red Sox, then he went to the Indians, and now I'm going to read a longer passage from Steinberg's article. On August 24, 1919, in his first start in Cleveland's League Park, Ray Caldwell led the Philadelphia Athletics 2-1 to with two outs on the ninth. Suddenly, bolts of lightning clustered over the ballpark. Sparks danced along the metal railings. Then Ray was hit by the lightning and knocked down unconscious. One account said that the bolt had entered the metal button on the top of his cap and exited the metal spikes of his shoes. Ray later told the Cleveland Press, it felt just like somebody came up with a board and hit me on top of the head and knocked me down, end quote. Another article on the Society for American Baseball Research website, this one by Chad Osborne, says that the lightning, quote, 
knocked off Indian catcher Steve O'Neill's mask and hat, as well as Harry Davis's navy blue A's cap. As for Caldwell, there does not appear to have been any kind of lightning strike protocol that he went into. Reports say that he got up, he wanted to keep going, he was allowed to keep going, and he got the last batter, Joe Dugan, to ground out, ending the game. Caldwell, who died in 1967, was also known as an advocate of the spitball. He spoke out in favor of the band pitch, getting unbanned as late as 1961. That did not happen, but I hope Ben Caldwell still considered himself a lucky dude, given what happened to him in 1919. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, you should go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And if you're still here, why don't you listen to some more hangup? And why don't you do that by hanging out for our bonus segment? This week, we have Nick Green with us, and we talked about the new team names and team descriptions for the new XFL. The previous iteration of the XFL had teams like the Extreme, spelled with one X and one E, or two E's actually, excuse me. And then they also had the Maniacs with an X. Didn't Maniacs have two X's? Am I wrong on that? I think you're wrong. You have to, I think you bought a bootleg jersey. Seriously? Hear that conversation. Join Slate Plus. $35 for the first year. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Stefan Patsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>